today is the last day of Epiphany. It's the season of the church calendar where we wonder about the presence of Jesus in the world. We wonder about who Christ is as revelation. Not just a revelation, but the revelation. The most full, most complete, the most full picture of who God is. We remember that there is not another God standing behind Jesus waiting to say, psych, gotcha. Jesus is the representation of God. Jesus is God in our midst. So when we look at Jesus, when we witness Jesus, we are looking at God's very self. Epiphany is about visions. It's about seeing Jesus for who he is, which is mostly what is not happening with the disciples. The text today begins with the transfiguration story, which if you heard it today and thought to yourself, well, I don't know what to do with that, you are in good company because Peter, James, and John felt similarly. And it says they kept silent and in those days told no one what they had seen. Well, meanwhile, the other nine disciples are having some other sort of experience down this mountain in the community. Our text doesn't say a whole lot about it uh, from their point of view, but presumably while Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up on this mountain having prayer time and a spiritual experience, the other nine disciples are below ministering as Jesus had only just sent them out and empowered them to do. Just 37 verses earlier in Luke 9, it says this, when Jesus had called the 12 together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Yet it seemed that while they were proclaiming the good news and ministering, a father comes to them. He had a son, his only son. His son was suffering from being possessed by a spirit. And the father begged the disciples, please heal my son. Maybe, maybe he had heard about their ministry in other villages. Perhaps he had even seen them. Maybe he had heard about the ways that they had drove out demons. Maybe he had heard them proclaim the kingdom of God and that it was at hand and that it was different than the kingdom of Rome with its tumultuous leadership, its iron fist, its perchance for violence. Maybe this father had heard of this ministry and felt a kernel of hope. Please heal my son. He is suffering so much. The spirit seizes him, it throws him into convulsions, it never leaves him, it is destroying him. Please heal my son, my only son, my only child, please. But they could not. So while Peter, James, and John are up on this mountain having this sort of otherworldly spiritual encounter with Jesus, the vision of Jesus in glory, the other nine disciples are amongst the people having this unfolding nightmare of an experience as this desperate father begs and begs and begs for them to heal his suffering son. But they cannot. 
and the, the son's suffering lingers. One son, deeply suffering, is brought by his father for healing. But that is not the only son in the story. So we have to back up for a minute. This son, this other son has yet to suffer, but he has started to talk about it a whole lot. Just before this in Luke 9, there's been this crucial conversation with Jesus and his disciples. After a time of prayer, Jesus turns and asks his disciples, his closest friends, the ones that he has served with, laughed with, done ministry with, the ones who have been taught by him. Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? Given Jesus's miracles and teachings, many would have seen him as the forerunner to the Messiah, the predecessor. And so uh, he would have been the long-awaited uh, before person to the Jewish hope. And the disciples say as much. Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, some say you're a prophet. But who do you say that I am? Asks Jesus. Peter speaks up, seemingly having a true epiphany. You are Christ. You are the Messiah of God. And it is a key moment where the identity of Jesus, who Jesus really is, is named. But then Jesus tells them not to tell anyone. And Jesus begins to talk about what it means for him to be the Christ. He will undergo great suffering. He'll be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes. He'll be killed. And on the third day, he'll be raised. And Jesus goes on to give this instruction about being a follower. Whoever wants to follow me, he says, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. So again, this cross language, the implications for suffering. What is the deal, Jesus? Messiahs, kings, Christ, they don't suffer. There is not supposed to be any death for someone like Jesus. But this son, God's son, is different. Jesus is up on this mountain praying. And repeatedly in Luke, Jesus is found praying. Prayer is the sort of gasoline, the lifeline, the foundation of Jesus's life and ministry. It's in prayer at Jesus's baptism when the Holy Spirit descends upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven and says, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Throughout Jesus's ministry, he would withdraw to pray, his ministry in person relying on the grace of God to sustain him. This, this time of prayer on the mountain, well, it was no different. In prayer, this son, God's son, is being brought by, the God, by God the Father to glory before the son's coming suffering, before his suffering will heal all things. While Jesus is praying, his face and his clothes are changed as if he were a heavenly being. While four went up the mountain, suddenly six are present with Moses and Elijah with him in conversation. Their presence is a confirmation of the whole tradition, the law and the prophets. And they're talking with Jesus about his coming departure, literally his exodus, his departure that will liberate all. 
their presence, the dazzling change to Jesus's face and appearance. This is the glory of God, the Alpha and Omega, the one who was, is, and forever will be, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, blazing with glory in their midst. Wow. A cloud appears, covers them, like the way that God led the Israelites through the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. God's very presence with them. Peter, James, and John are understandably afraid. A voice comes from the cloud and says to them on this mountain, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. If Jesus had felt any worry, any concern or trepidation as he begins to turn toward the cross, he stands here on this mountaintop in glory, feeling the fullness of God's love for him, the empowerment and the presence of God sending him from glory to suffering to glory. This son has been brought by his father to experience glory. Before any part of Jesus's walk to the cross has begun, he is glorified, a foretaste of the coming glory. When I was growing up, we always would go to my grandma and grandpa's house for big holidays, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Easter, and you know, the odd weekend. And uh, on wintry holidays, especially, you know, we would walk in and sort of stamp out of our boots on the orange and brown 70s carpet. And before our coats were even off, I knew what we were eating for dinner. My grandma had made her peppery roast beef. No one else could make it, only grandma. And you just knew. I mean, your coat hadn't even hit the floor and you just knew what we were having for lunch and it was going to be good. On the table would be a cheese platter. And I mean, it was okay. I really like a good cheese platter, but it is nothing compared to the peppery roast beef. And I knew that if I hung around in that kitchen long enough, as my grandma was slicing the roast beef, there would be a small plate of slivers and I could have a nibble, a small plate of the coming dinner. And I would know confirmation of the, of the scent that I had smelled, it was going to be fantastic. Jesus's glory here on this mountain is a small plate. It is a nibble of the coming glory. It is the first flavors on the tongue of the promised goodness of God, a glory and goodness that God intends to bring us into a promised feast. And so when Jesus, James and John come down that mountain, a large crowd has formed and they press in upon Jesus. A man in the crowd calls out, it says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsion. So he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him. It's destroying him, please. I begged your disciples to drive it out but they could not. So here is Jesus from the mountaintop of glory and then face to face with suffering. It wasn't the first time and it certainly would not be the last. A crowd of spectators look on 
they wait. And here is this father, again, desperately desiring healing for his suffering child. The father brings his son to Jesus at Jesus's request, bring your son here. And the text says, even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And this, this healing is another foretaste, another bite of the promised goodness of God. No one there knew the coming suffering, death, resurrection that Jesus would heal all people through. This healing, this boy's healing is just a foretaste of the coming healing that Christ would bring for all people. Jesus's movement from glory to suffering is not the vision that the disciples had in mind. And thank God for that. Thank God they were wrong. And when we wonder what God is like, and we look at Jesus, we can be assured that the glory of God does not refuse, is not absent from, is not at a distance from suffering. This text at its heart is a vision of two sons, one is deeply suffering and brought by his father to Jesus for healing. The other son is brought by his father to experience glory before his suffering will heal all people. From glory to suffering to glory. I grew up in a small town in Wisconsin. So if you drive, you'd often see lots and lots of farmland. And it was pretty typical to drive past a lot of corn, someone driving on their combine, and it was not also unusual to smell the farm before you could see it. Don't know if anyone else had that experience. But to be perfectly honest, I was a little bit more of a garden girl. Uh, my grandparents had this, really my grandfather had this magnificent garden, fenced in, big sunflowers. Of course, you know, as a small person, it looked just so amazing to see all the plants towering over me. And we would go with him and we would walk row after row of this garden. And he would point out to us how the, how the tomatoes were doing. We would pluck some cucumbers. We'd get the bugs off of the berry bushes, get some carrots, tomatoes, go inside and eat lunch. And for the longest time, the only tomatoes I would eat were the ones from grandpa's garden. But next to his garden, there was this big black box on a mound. And it was the compost bin. I tried to stay away from it because it smelled bad. <laughs> and I didn't really understand what it was or why my grandfather would save all of his organic scraps, put them in this bin when he had two perfectly good garbage bins that he could put them in and then he wouldn't have to smell anything. It seemed like the smarter decision. Well, a few years ago, I had the opportunity to take a class on agriculture and faith, and I was on a small farm again. I had no idea what I could possibly learn from this, but loved the idea of being outside of the classroom, out on the farm, and apparently so did my classmates because 30 of us tromped out to this small farm to see what we could learn about faith in the garden. And I need you to imagine this picture with me. So it's a group of about 30 adults, most of whom had never stepped foot onto a farm. We're all studying to be pastors. We spend a lot of time in the library with our noses in books, and we looked the part. <laughs> we showed up to the farm with very squeaky clean boots, 
Some of us in khakis and polos, and we had no idea what we were in for. Just this little pack of nerds outside the library. Now our fearless leader, Dr. Stuckey, he takes half of us to our first task. We tromp out through the rows and rows of pines and you smell our first task before you see it. Rotting garbage. A couple people start to look a little bit sick. We're not really sure what we've gotten into. We see huge piles and piles of bags of rotting produce that has been gifted to us from the local grocer on our left. And then on our right is the compost pile. Some of us are given the job of opening the bags of rotten produce, dropping it into the pile. Others of us are given the job of adding mulch to the pile. And then the rest of us, myself included, are given the job of smashing up the rotten produce and mixing the pile together. As we work, we're just enveloped by the stench. If we had smelled like books before, we do not now. We are covered. Khakis, no longer khaki. Grime up and down our arms, in between our fingernails, all of it. Fruit and vegetables, they are long since past their prime. Our stomachs are turning. We're engaged in this mess. It is a gross place to be. None of us leave that job unaffected or clean, and we are just caked in the grime of all of it. When Jesus encounters this boy's suffering, he climbs into the compost pile of it. He has no regard for his appearance that he was just dazzling white up on this mountaintop, but he enters right into the middle of it. He is willing, walking right up to suffering. He has no intention of a partial healing, only a full and complete transfiguration for all people will do. He breathes in the smell of pain and suffering. He's coated with the grime and the slime of it all. He takes the organic raw material of our lives that seems like it is long past its prime. And Jesus says, just watch for the vision. Bring it to me. Watch what healing I will bring. Watch what transfiguration I will do. Watch what glory I can make from this. Because as any gardener or farmer can tell you, the compost pile is not a pile of death or rot. It is a pile of transfiguration. The chemical process will happen where all these things come together and it will become something that brings life, that brings nutrients to old soil that's been stripped of its nutrients. It will bring transfiguration and make glorious new life. One father brings his suffering son to Jesus for healing. Another father brings his son to glory, to suffering, so that all might be brought into glory. This son's suffering, Jesus' suffering, will lead to the healing of all people, to their transfiguration, where we are all brought into the glory of God. And that is the good news, that we can bring our suffering to Christ and we can watch for God's glorious transfiguration. In God's transfiguration, there will no longer be war or rumors of wars, but swords will be beaten into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up, war, will not take up arms against other nations, nor will they train for war anymore. Because God will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths 
and we will walk in the light of the Lord. In God's transfiguration, there will no longer be division and anger and spite and antagonistic rhetoric, but we will be transfigured to live as one humanity, not in spite of difference, but in the glory of God's creativity for all are one in Jesus Christ, where people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will say together, salvation is God's. And in God's transfiguration, the sufferings of addiction, of isolation, of death will be no more. For look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things will have passed away. He who is seated on the throne says, I am making everything new. And in God's transfiguration, we bring our very selves And God says, if anyone is in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. Just watch, bring it to me, Jesus says. Just watch what I can do with this. So bring your life, our lives, our nation, our church, our world, bring it to Jesus. Watch what healing he will bring. Watch what transfiguration he will do. Watch what glory he can make from all of this. Let's pray. Gracious God, what good news it is that you do not run from suffering, but walk into it. And not only walk into it, but deeply enter it so you are covered in it. So you can transfigure it and bring new life. And that is what we need in so many parts of ourselves, our communities, our world around us, we need that transfiguration. And we have tried so many times to do it ourselves and it has not panned out. And so we pray again to bring this all to you. And we will watch. We will watch for your transfiguration, for the glory that you are bringing, for the foretaste we're having even today. And we will give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.